Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. I'm all about like just embracing the shit show and the relationship stuff and learning how to like laugh at ourselves and embrace our entire stories, especially the the messy parts, especially the stuff that's like embarrassing and the shit that we like cringe over because that's us. That's part of our story. And I wouldn't take any of that back. Like if I could do things differently, I wouldn't because it shaped me into who I am today and given me depth and meaning. And if I could have a normal childhood, I wouldn't wouldn't. Hi guys, Ashley here. I am here with two requests. One, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Wherever you get your podcast, go there, hit the subscribe button, give us five stars and a review. This is our podcast currency and it helps us get in front of more people so that we can help more people. Second, please go check out lionrock.life, Lion Rock Life app using promo code COURAGE. This community is incredible. It's a recovering community that I partake in and I want you there. So please go download, check that out using promo code COURAGE. All right, here we go. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Your Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Andrea Ashley. Andrea is a former CPA turned podcast host and producer. She grew up outside of Philadelphia in an alcoholic household. Andrea turned to drugs and alcohol herself at the age of 12. After years in and out of rehabs and boarding schools, she was granted the gift of sobriety at age 19 and celebrated 13 years of continuous sobriety this past September. In 2018, and with nine years of sobriety, Andrea had her second great surrender and came to terms with the true impact her dysfunctional upbringing had on her. This bottom and the subsequent healing work led her to launch Adult Child in March of 2021. The podcast is a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family with topics including addiction, codependency, and complex trauma. Andrea describes the podcast as vulnerable and filterless conversations of depth and meaning with a healthy dose of humor and self-mockery. Adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families have a unique story to tell and offer a picture into what unresolved alcoholism and dysfunction can do to a family. This is such a fantastic episode and conversation that needs to be had. So many people who've grown up in dysfunctional families don't know why they do the things that they do. And oftentimes that trauma, that dysfunction, even then alcoholism aren't what we think it is. It doesn't have to be the blatant, crazy alcoholism that we see on shows like Shameless. It can be much more subtle and it still has effects on us and our adult lives. There is a laundry list, which has a list of characteristics for adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families. There are 14 things on this list, 14 different characteristics that often occur for adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families families, check it out. Google ACA laundry list. See if that might be something that resonates with you. They say that three or more of those that you relate to might indicate that you grew up in a dysfunctional family. And Andrea and I talk about the fact that a dysfunctional family 
all families are dysfunctional, right? So a dysfunctional family means dysfunction that wasn't handled, dysfunction that was buried. That is the difference between a dysfunctional family that actually handled things and where you may not be on that laundry list and the dysfunctional families where you do end up with these characteristics because things were not dealt with, because things were buried. Andrea also has a ton of resources and talks to people on her podcast all about this stuff. So I look forward to hearing feedback and I hope this episode is extremely helpful for you and yours. Please enjoy Andrea Ashley. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Okay, Andrea, thank you so much for being here. I know you have a crazy story because we were just talking about it before we started the recording that we wanted to share right out of the gate to lighten the mood. So give us the story. Yeah, so I... um Well, first of all, I'm the girl that when people ask for me to describe what I was like when I was drinking, I mean, I was the girl that would get kicked out of the party and then return to the party and then get everyone arrested for underage drinking. I'm happy to to share that. But yeah, I'm also the girl that apparently sticks poop in closets. So I was probably 16. I was drunk. I was at a party. I go to the bathroom. I poop a little bit. It's just a little bit, like a few pebbles. And the toilet won't flush. I can hear that there is somebody waiting to get in. So I feel like a normal person would just be like, oh, the, the person before me, like, <laughs> right, well, that right, didn't right. even cross my mind. But what crossed my mind was, um, let's retrieve the poop. Let's retrie- let's go fishing. So I retrieved it with some toilet paper. I wrapped it in a bunch of toilet paper and then I wrapped it in a nice hand towel. And I stuck it in the back of the bathroom closet. I still remember this person's name. I <laughs> I don't know. Should it be like a mystery for the rest of her? I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it was years before they found it. Probably. Probably. Yeah, it was probably years. They probably thought it was like a rogue toddler someone had over who pooped in the closet. I mean, that's what I would think. Yes. I think if they'd found it the next day, the people at the party probably would think it was me because everyone fucking hated me. And I understand why. Why did everyone hate you, Andrea? Because I was such a shit show. I literally was just... You know, I'm one of those alcoholics where all of my personality traits, negative personality traits are like magnified to the millionth degree when I drink. Just really sloppy and obnoxious. And, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with in the seventh grade, I became like the school slut Mm. and became the girl that no one was allowed to be friends with. Mm, No one wanted to be friends with. Yep. Yeah, I was just harassed on a daily basis and then eventually was kicked out of that private school at the end of seventh grade. And so I feel like, I mean, obviously there was already shame being ingrained in me within my family, but I really feel like that was like the final like nail in the coffin where like shame really became my identity. You know, they talk about sh- toxic shame as like when shame becomes 
when shame is internalized and when an emotion is internalized, it no longer functions as an emotion and becomes one's identity. So I really feel like that is when shame became my identity. And I feel like in a way, in order to almost... I leaned into it. I leaned into it. So John Bradshaw talks about in The Shame That Binds You that it either goes two ways. You could either go shameless acting in. So that's when one tries to be like perfect and avoid any sort of shaming experiences or can go shameful acting out. And that's the route that I went. So I like really leaned into the shame. And so I just feel like I... um I pushed people away. It was like, I didn't want to... I knew that you were going to eventually realize that you didn't like me and want anything to do with me. So I'd rather just not even give you the opportunity to do that. Or like I would just manifest it into my reality. So I was just really sloppy. I was really sloppy. The story... So this was my senior year of high school. I was invited to this birthday party, kind of by association. But I was only allowed to attend if I drank beer only. Now, initially, I was told I wasn't allowed to drink at all. And that was because of some scenes. Like I just caused scenes. I was the scene girl. So I negotiated to beer only. And so I drank a bottle of wine before I went. I fully intended to follow this beer only policy, but obviously I'm an alcoholic. So my intentions don't mean shit. Wasn't long before I got into the liquor. Wasn't long after that, that I was kicked out of the party and drove home with two people. So what did I do? Well, I called a taxi. (laughs) This was in like 2006. So like pre-Uber. I called a taxi and I had that taxi take me right back to the party. And when my re-arrival was not warmly welcomed, well, I caused quite a scene. I made quite a lot of noise. The neighbors called the cops and we all got arrested for underage drinking. So that was that was me. Rough. Rough. Yeah. 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 A real party animal. Yeah, Aren't you, yeah. you didn't have a chance to drink with me? I drank with lots of you, <laughs> lots of yous, and myself was very similar. And one thing I wanted to touch on that I was curious if you had a similar experience. You mentioned about being the slut in seventh grade. No one was allowed to be hang out with you. And that was my experience too. But what's interesting is the reasons I was like that word, that term, and the reasons I was called a slut in seventh grade. When I look back at like what was causing people to say that, it was some sexuality. It wasn't like my 20s. <laughs> you know, like it was just, I don't know if that was your experience where it was just like, I like I look back and I'm like, I was called a slut just because I was interested in sex at all. No, I was a little different. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't call myself a slut, but no, me and my friend, we were in the seventh grade. We got invited to this high school party. And so we waited until her parents went to bed. We snuck out. And by the time we got to the party, the party had already been busted by the cops. So there was only like, I don't know, six or seven people there. And it was so it was the these ninth grade boys who were the eighth grade boys when we were in the sixth grade. And, you know, we had just been obsessed with them and had nicknames for them and everything. And so we show up and it's only them. Like it's only it was like the girls whose house it was and like a bunch of these guys. And so I gave a blowjob to one of them and she gave a blowjob to another one. It was the house was at like a rectory house of a church. And it was like, I just remember it was like we did it like under this like stone overpass of the church. And other people were like standing around and watching it. Then we came back to school and you know what? We did it. Like, here's the thing. I wasn't like, we weren't like pressured into it. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't, we wanted to do it. Like I wanted to do it because I thought it would make me cool. It didn't make me cool. (laughs) It didn't make me cool. When we came back, it was over winter break. And when we came back, it was like a K through 12 school. And it was like the entire school knew about it. And the way I dealt with it was like, I... 
like I said, I leaned into it and I caught, I acted as if like this was who I wanted to be. And like, I wasn't ashamed or embarrassed or that was like the armor that I put up, but it was, yeah, it's really sad. Like looking back on it, you know, I think what's interesting is it's kind of, I guess where I was going with it was similar place, which is like, you gave one blowjob and that made you a slut. And, you know, in this particular situation and my experience, like I had sex in seventh grade and like with an older guy and like by definition, I was suddenly a slut where in reality, like I was involved in a sex act or in sex at like, and so that idea of I'm a slut was something that I carried with me and I leaned into, but I wasn't really until that was kind of the thing I needed to lean into, right? Like it wasn't the original intention. And I don't think that's what was going on. But because that's how it was labeled, I was like, okay, well, I guess that's who I am. And that's what I'm going to do. And like, that's how I feel. And and I took it on. But originally, it, that's not where it came from. Yeah, you know, I had like a different experience in the sense that like that scarred me so much that I mean, I got sober at 19. But I didn't like I was... I feel like most of my friends, my girlfriends in sobriety, I mean, they were like real hoe bags during their alcoholism. And that wasn't my experience because I feel like that experience scarred me so much. When you say you leaned into it, then what did that look like? Drugs and alcohol and just like being bad. Just being bad. Breaking rules. Yeah. Like right after that, I started sneaking out of the house. My parents... They put a security system on the house to keep me in, not to keep people out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I got sent to rehab for the first time in eighth grade and just in and out of rehabs and boarding schools. And yeah, just leaning into just acting out, not necessarily sexually though. Yeah. Yeah. We have very, very similar. I got sober at 19 and got sent away to all the places and the same same type of thing. You talk a lot about your picker. I love this, right? Because I totally relate to having a gnarly picker and picking some... And when we say picker for people who don't know, like picking you know, a mate, a man, a woman, whatever it is, a, a, a sexual partner. And I do want to get into like also your podcast and a little for people who don't know what an adult child is because I have run into so many people who don't know about the adult child laundry list and don't know about how this affects. I literally just talked to a friend and read it to her. She couldn't believe how many things were accurate. And so I think bringing the awareness that your podcast brings to this and just generally speaking, it's super, super important. So I do want to get into that, but I want to hear a bit about your Brian's swearing off Brian's for good and, and what happened there. So I would say that, and I'm sure this is probably your experience as well, that most of us enter sobriety with broken pickers. I mean, I don't think that people that are newly sober have like a high self-worth and a long history of healthy relationships, generally speaking. So yeah, so we typically don't find ourselves in the best relationships. I mean, I didn't... Did you adhere to the no dating in the first year? Absolutely not. Me neither. Me neither. The first guy I dated was actually that the age difference between us was more than my actual age. I was 20 and he was 45. Gross. So, but thank God I stayed sober. I don't know how the fuck I did. I don't know how I did, but I did. So what I noticed was that like my friends' pickers were improving and mine was not. Mm, Interesting. Yep. And that was like really hard. And not only was it not improving, 
less to do with the guys and more to do about my experience in the relationships. Each relationship, I felt crazier. It was like, you know, it was what I didn't realize is that like I was suffering from like another progressive illness, but and that I was every time I was in a romantic relationship, I was essentially living in a trauma response and I had no fucking clue. But yeah, each relationship, it was just so much more emotionally like taxing on me and I felt crazier and I acted crazier. And each relationship, I would just make at the demise of each relationship. And thankfully, I was not somebody that hopped from one to the next. I think partially because it would take me so long to get over one. But I would. I'd have significant periods of being single, like a year, a year and a half. And during that period of time, I would feel good about myself and I would have a great life. And I had friends and did fun things and felt really on a conscious level. Like I felt like I had high self-esteem. I thought that I had high self-worth. And so I'd enter these new relationships. Like I'm going to do things differently. I'm not going to ignore red flags. And I was completely incapable of doing so. And I couldn't figure out what the fuck was wrong with me. You know? What's interesting though is that you were able to go for periods of time without a relationship. I think that's actually a really interesting piece of this because a lot of the time, the people with our types of backgrounds and who come, we can't be without some sort of relation, if not two or three relationships, but you were able to do that, which indicates a growing self esteem, but then it's stunted by this. It, that's a very specific thing to do with relationships. Yeah. So Dr. Drew, actually, when I was on his podcast, he made that comment. He was like, it's interesting. He's like, you just almost have just like the pure codependency and not the love addiction. Yes. I think, which I think exactly. is interesting. Yep. I think exactly. Um, but yeah, I would. But I mean, a lot of it though was like, I mean, I almost feel like it would be easier if I was able to do that. You know, just like less of a downer. But like, even if like Mr. Wonderful dropped in front of me, like, right, I was just so, because I just got so attached. I just was so, so attached that it just took me, like, literally, I was convinced that this would be the last person on earth that I would ever like. I'd never meet anybody as wonderful as them. No one would ever be interested in me ever again. And then what would happen was like, I would try to go on a date. And then they could be like the most wonderful person, but it didn't matter. I wasn't over the last one. And so then that would just like reinforce that in me. Oh, I'm never going to meet anyone as, you know, and so that would just make me feel like shit. And so I just felt so much shame. You know, I felt so much shame and I started to see myself become the person that I was when I was drinking. Like I started to push my friends away. Like people didn't want to be friends with me anymore because I was such an emotional vampire. And I'm just like, I just remember being like, holy shit, I'm becoming that girl again. But then thankfully I, so I got sober in Jacksonville, Florida. And then I moved out to San Francisco and I had five years. I truly believe I came out here like for a reason. And that was to meet the Bryans and more importantly, to meet my therapist. So I met Brian number one in I had seven years sober. So it was 2015. And there were signs on the first date that he probably had a drinking problem. Cause that's so I either dated people that were like in the program or active alcoholics. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. So I met Brian number one and it lasted less than a month. 
and he kind of ghosted me. And I literally wanted to fucking die. Like I literally felt like this is a person I'd known for less than a month. And I literally felt like my husband of 30 years had just like tragically died in a plane crash. I mean, I had a panic attack at work. I had to go home. I became completely non-functional. I couldn't understand why people who were going through breakups were able to like go to work and like check out. Cause I didn't, I didn't understand that I was going, I was in experience PTSD. So I didn't under, and that was another part of my shame too. was like, why do I react so differently than everybody else in relationships? Why am I completely powerless over my thoughts and my emotions? And literally like my, when I would go into a relationship, my peace of mind was completely hijacked. It didn't matter what I did, how many meetings I went to, none of it. It didn't fucking matter. And so it was during that breakup with Brian number one, right? I had my first aha moment. And I was like, there's no way that what I'm feeling right now could actually be about this guy. Like I've known him for less than a month. That doesn't make sense. And then the second aha was like, wow, this is a feeling that I felt often as a child. And that was the first time that I was able to connect it and see that because, you know, I had always known that my childhood had been, had been less than ideal, but I also was never sexually or physically abused. So how bad could it truly have been? And then I became, I became the focal point of the family at 12. So that was huge. And so it was like shortly after that, I went to a meeting and this woman who had over 30 years, I heard her share and she was talking about this emotional bottom that she had hit at seven years sober, which is what I had at the time. And it was due to a romantic relationship that allowed her to come to terms with the true impact that her child had had on her. And she mentioned this book, Adult Children of Alcoholic and Dysfunctional Families. I go home, I read the book, my mind is blown. Everybody needs to... I think it should just be required reading for everyone. But I mean, even way more so than the big book. And it was like everything that I had thought and I had felt, it was the first time I was like seeing it in words, you know? And it just reaffirmed this punch that I had that my issues were related to my childhood. So a week later, I go back to that meeting. I see that woman. And I was like, your share was so impactful to me. Like I went home, I read that book and she just looked at me and she goes, Andrea, that's great. (laughs) But I just want to let you know, like it's going to take a lot more than than reading a book. This is your life's work. This is going to take you years, years of therapy. You can get through this, but you have to treat this as seriously as your alcoholism. And I just remember thinking, I don't have years, lady. (laughs) I don't have years. I got a couple months, if not yesterday. I'm like basically a senior citizen. I'm like 28. I need to have this shit fixed. So I was like, okay, I'll take a year off from dating. I'll read this book. I'm going to be good. I did some, I did some other stuff. I actually did do some EMDR during that period of time too. However, I still wasn't, I just still wasn't like fully aware of what I was dealing with. And I wasn't, I was working with a therapist, but this was not her, her area of expertise. And so, yeah, so I took a year off and then I met Brian number two (laughs) and not only like had nothing gotten any better, like I had gotten worse. And the next six months were like the most painful six months of my entire life. It was hell. It was hell. Leaving work at like 11 in the morning to go pull him out of bars, just like insanity, like dragging him upstairs and just, yeah, completely unable to work, just like literally just being like strung out all the time, but like being completely sober. It was through that relationship that I saw that what I was dealing with was not just as serious as my alcoholism, but like even more so. And when that relationship ended, I was like, I'm ready to do whatever the fuck it takes. Like my life depends upon this. Like I'm, I'm going to die if I don't. 
And uh, that was in January of 2018. And I was so hesitant to find a new therapist because I didn't want to have to start over. Like I felt like there's so much that I'm going to have to like catch her up on. But I did. I, I Googled adult children of alcoholic therapists. And eventually I found Stephanie Brown. She's actually mentioned in the ACA book. She has a, a therapist practice here in the Bay Area. I called her. I told her what was going on. She said, I don't have any availability, but go check out one of my ladies that works in my practice. And so I started seeing her and I saw her twice a week for the first year and a half. I still see her once a week and she's fucking saved my life. When you describe an adult child, I just want to pull up the definition real quick because you have it on your website, which is adultchildpodcast.com. I just want to read this real quick about what is an adult child. So, So an adult child is someone who grew up in an alcoholic or dysfunctional family with unresolved pain from childhood that surfaces in adulthood and not in a good way. This unresolved pain causes them to respond to adult situations with self doubt, self blame, or a sense of being wrong or inferior, which was all ingrained during their childhood. In other words, our childhood experiences program the person we become in adulthood. And this is the case for everyone. And an adult child is someone whose childhood resulted in faulty programming. And I love that you have in here, but isn't every family dysfunctional, right? Because I think a lot of people... I think you said, well, I wasn't sexually or physically abused. I know so many people who say that. What about that? What about... So you say that it's how the dysfunction is handled. How were you able to identify that you're an adult child without some of these characteristics that you probably thought were required? Well, I mean, I grew up in an alcoholic. I mean, it wasn't like... I knew my childhood messed me up, but I just didn't think that I had experienced trauma, I guess is what I should say. But yeah, so I mean, I grew up with an alcohol... I found out my mom was an alcoholic when I was seven. I was told. (laughs) We were out to dinner. Covering or not. No. So we were out to dinner and I could just tell that something was off. And my dad got there. She started to cry. And then my mom took me to the bathroom at a certain point. And I was like, what's wrong? She said, I'm an alcoholic. I'm seven. I don't know what the fuck that means. So I'm like, what does that mean? She says, it means I can't drink. And it was like from that day for it was like, I didn't know what an alcoholic was or what alcoholism was, but I knew exactly what an alcoholic was and what alcoholism was. You know, it was like, I went to bed that night and I feel like I woke up the next day, like having skipped several stages of like development. I developed this sixth sense with her drinking. Like I would feel it hours before she would even pick up a drink. And my dad, so I was an only child and my dad was, you know, a workaholic. So he traveled. He was out of town a lot. And that's when my mom drank the most. So thankfully nothing horrible ever happened, you know, but she drove me around drunk everywhere. My dad knew that she was doing this. When he was in town, I was like, it was like he was Sherlock and I was home. It's like we would search the house for her booze. I remember being eight years old, taking a paint stick in the liquor cabinet and like marking off the levels of each bottle. I was, I was parentified. Like I, he, my mom's alcoholism was a secret from the rest of the world. Right. So I was like his emotional confidant. I was like his, I was like his spouse. And uh, really the only time my dad was emotionally available to me was when my mom was drunk and emotionally unavailable to him. And so I started to develop separation anxiety and uh, probably around eight or nine, I woke up one morning or not. I woke up in the middle of the night one night and I felt like I was going to die. Like I was just like in this panic and I had to sleep in my mom's bed. Like I felt like I was going to die if I didn't sleep in my mom's bed. And so it started this, uh, this pattern where I would fall asleep in my own bed. And then in the middle of the night, I would go and switch places with my dad. And I was completely incapable of like spending the night. Like I couldn't go to sleepovers, any of that. My parents eventually sent me to see a child psychologist for my separation anxiety. And I remember years later asking, did you ever tell them that, <laughs> that 
you were an alcoholic and that you and dad fought all the time? And she said to me, no, it didn't seem relevant. So I became the scapegoat of the family at nine. Like I became the identified patient at nine. And then what happened was like when I started to drink and use drugs at 12, that worked. My mom stopped drinking as much and my parents stopped fighting. And that kept the family together. And I acted out for the next seven years. And it was like, they had to come together to deal with me. How did you link that? Some of those specific feelings to how you were acting in relationships? Well, it was that that feeling that I woke up with, that separation anxiety, that was the feeling that I felt when I had that aha moment with Brian, number one, like just like literally feeling like I was going to die. So yeah, just that trait 12 is we are dependent personalities who are terrified of abandonment and will do anything to hold on to a relationship in order not to experience painful abandonment feelings that we experienced from growing up with parents who were never there for us emotionally. Oh my God, that was pretty good. Love <laughs> it. The top of my no, head. That was like, holy shit. Holy shit. When I read that, you know, and that's on the, that's on the, for people who don't know, that's on the ACA adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families. It's on the laundry list. If you Google laundry list, there's 14. They say if you have at least three, you might be an adult child. So, okay. How many do you need to like for sure? I can't tell you that. More than three. (laughs) More than three. So you discover ACA. This becomes a big part of your healing journey. Tell me about the transformation with your picker, the transformation, like what kind of things did you use to heal from this and, and what that looks like now? Yeah. So I would say the majority of the work that I've done has been in therapy. You know, this is, you know, I view this as a trauma disorder syndrome. You know, it's a, it's a form of complex PTSD. So I think that ACA is wonderful. I think the literature is mind blowing, but I do think it's really important to, to do a lot of this trauma work and therapy. It's really, really hard though to find a good therapist. And that is just the experience of so many of us, like that I hear, like we all sat in therapy for years and we're never, the therapist never identified like this, this was what our issue was. So yeah, so just a lot of therapy, ACA meetings, everything, reading spiritual stuff. So I took a good... I mean, I took it probably at least a year and a half single. I think it's so fucking important. So important. And what I like to say is like, you're really selling yourself short if you don't do that. You know, you're, you are selling yourself short from the type of relationship that you could have that you deserve to have because you're going to change the quality of people that you're attracted to is going to improve and the type of people that are attracted to you are going to improve. So it's like exposure therapy in some way because you're, you spend the year. I did that as well. I spent a year and I remember like just feeling having to do things on my own that I never really considered that someone could do on their own or and the feeling of empowerment going through that and knowing that after that getting into relationships it was like I want you but I don't need you and I didn't know that before and the thing for me was like I said I thought that I had high self-esteem and I thought that like I mean on a conscious level I thought I was pretty I thought I was smart I thought I was funny but my actions clearly showed otherwise you know and what I tolerated so I probably like dipped my toe back in the pond like I don't know maybe like around the time that like COVID started or yeah it was like right before COVID I think what I noticed was was that 
there was a few guys that I think I would have really been drawn to in the past <laughs> that had issues that I was not, I was, I was not, I was not into it. So that was good. There was another guy that I did kind of like, we, I liked the first date most of the time I don't. And then I remember it was like a few days after that and he had texted me and then I'd responded and then he didn't respond to me for like two days. And in the past, even after going on one date with somebody, if that were to happen, I would be like, I would be dead. Like I would just be really struggling and it didn't impact me. And that was like, holla fucking Luya. You know, like that was huge. And then I don't know, maybe it was about a year ago. I went on another date with a guy and, and I liked him and I would have gone on a second date with him. I guess it was like a couple of days later, he just reached out. He said, Hey, I, I had a good time with you, but I didn't feel any romantic connection. And what was really beautiful about that moment was that receiving that message didn't change how I felt about myself at all. And that was huge. So then it was probably about... It was probably, I don't know, in February, maybe. I started chatting with this guy. So I actually I actually met him like non-romantically. So it was somebody that I'd reached out to to sponsor my podcast. So this was like a person in recovery. And we just like really hit it off like that. And that's probably a red flag. That is a red flag. Like when you feel those sparks, like, I don't know, I, I hope... Hopefully it can be that way. But I think generally speaking, like when it's like when the chemistry is so strong, like right away, that probably means you need to like run the other direction, I think, unfortunately. But so, so yeah, so we started like talking and he didn't live, he didn't live in California. He lived somewhere else. And, um, and I really liked him and he seemed like wonderful and he was sober and he, I don't know, he was like big and he did a lot of speaking and like, I'm creating this like fantasy in my head that we're going to be like this like powerhouse, like couple and all this stuff. And, and what I noticed was that like my, I, I felt some feelings that I hadn't felt in a long time. Like my fear of abandonment got triggered. And here's the thing. We do this work single. Like we, I think it's so important that we do this work on ourselves. However, and which I wish would be the case within, well, then when we start to date again, everything's just going to be like easy breezy. And unfortunately, like that's not the case. Like this is relational trauma. So a lot of it, like, yes, we have to do the work first on ourselves, but then there's going to be more work to be done in relationship. And so what was really amazing though was that when I would start to have those feelings, I could recognize what was going on. Like, okay, like you're having a trauma response. What you're feeling like really isn't about the present. It's about the past. And instead of trying to do whatever I could to stop feeling that way, I would sit with it. I would sit with it. I'd feel it in my body. It would pass. When I called friends in the past, I would be like, Oh, he sent me this text with a period, but he usually sends it like with an exclamation point, you know, like shit like that. Instead of like calling and saying stuff like that, I'd be like, Wow, my feeling of abandonment's really being triggered. You know, so it was like really taking the focus off of like what was like going on, but really what was going on, which is within me. And so it was really amazing to just be able to like, yeah, just, just watch it pass. And then like every time I would have these feelings like, oh my God, he's, I'm never going to hear from him. Like he's going to abandon me. Like then I'd hear from him. And then I'd be like, I was like, wow, I think my higher power is showing me that I can trust someone. <laughs> then the red flag became apparent. And instead of... Uh, Here's the thing. It wasn't like I was just completely 
disregard the red. I would note it. I would just disregard it. And I wouldn't tell anyone about it until I was in excruciating amounts of pain. You know? <laughs> totally. <laughs> Did I mention that he yeah. also... <laughs> oh my God. And then what I would do, I remember doing this like pre-adult child. Like I would, I would fess up to friends, right? I'd be like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And then what I would do was then I would make up conversations that I would have with the guys and then tell my friends about it so that they would be okay with me continuing to date them. Mm, interesting. I was <laughs> that clever and that was much more clever so i so there this red flag like became apparent and i remember i was i was talking to a friend who was a therapist and i was like this is like a 100 deal breaker right and she's like yes it is it was kind of in the conversation where i really identified this red flag that he he pulled away like i didn't hear from him for several days a part of me is thinking like i think that he knows that i'm gonna figure him out eventually I, i'm pretty intuitive there were some other red flags, like when I started to look back on it. So I didn't hear from him for like five days. And so then I, I just finally reached out and I was like, did you die? Because And here's the thing Actually. about sending... Yeah. Here's the thing about sending that though. I was going to be okay whether I got a response or not. Like in the past, I feel like I would send that and then I'd be like in panic and anxiety until I would hear back. I sent it being like, okay, regardless of whether or not I heard back. So he texted me back. He said, no, I did not. He had listened to my first podcast episode. I said, are you pulling a Brian number one sober edition on me? And so then he called. And basically what he told me was he started to make it about distance that we don't live in the same area. And so what I heard in that moment was... I'm not enough because if I was enough, then distance wouldn't matter. Like that's like where I went. And so I got off the phone and I was like really going through it. And it was really late and I couldn't get anybody on the phone. And then I finally got this one person, this one friend of mine, a guy on the phone. And he was like, <laughs> I was telling him about it. And he was just like, oh, like it was like the worst person. Like he was just like, oh, like that. Oh, mm. and I'm like, oh God, what the <laughs> fuck? It was like, made me feel like worse. Like, like oh, it was okay, horrible. You're fired. <laughs> yeah. And then thankfully one of my friends was like, hey, I can't talk. And I was like, thank the good fucking Lord. So then I get on the phone with her and it was amazing how like within about like 30, 45 minutes of being on the phone with her, like how my nervous system was able to calm down and how I was able to see like, no, actually, this has absolutely nothing to do with me. Like this has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not I'm enough. And that was huge. And I think that one of the big reasons why I was able to go there was a few weeks prior to that, I received a DM from Brian number one on Instagram. So I hadn't heard from him since 2015. 2015. And so he... Let me pull it up. He sent me a message on my, my podcast Instagram. And he said, Hello. Hope all is well. I've been following you on Instagram and what you're doing is incredible. I'm struggling with alcoholism and have been to 30-day treatment twice since I saw you. And this disease is why I couldn't connect with you. And I am so sorry for that. Your message is connective, truthful, and no doubt helped many people, including me. So thank you. I wish you success and the best life has to offer. Keep your message strong and thank you again. And... You know, when he ghosted me, I eventually heard from him and I can't remember what his excuse was, but what I heard in that moment was like, I'm not enough. And uh, receiving that message, like, helped me to see, like, no, it had absolutely nothing to do with me. And so, yeah, I felt wonky for a few days, but um, yeah, it didn't impact me the way that it had in the past. So, something that's interesting as well that's part of this when I was going through, you know, a similar journey was also that I had to learn, like, 
even if it was about me, if I wasn't what they wanted enough for the distance to be okay, or like there was something about me that just that wasn't what they wanted, that that was okay too. Like it was okay. I had to get to this place where me being enough for somebody else, I may not be their their bag. Like that may not be. And, and really wrapping my arms around the comfort or discomfort of it's okay for me not to be what they're looking for. Like that doesn't mean I'm not good enough generally. It just, it's okay. Like there's not everybody who's great that I look at is really what I'm looking for. And like really come putting that into my head too, along with like, this isn't about me was really important in order to stabilize my self-esteem. Absolutely. Yeah. And I feel like I just live, um, you know, another thing that... So part of hitting my adult child bottom was like the realization of like how much I had been selling myself short in life from a career perspective, specifically. But it was like my whole purpose in life up until that point had been like finding a guy and getting married. It was like truly all I had cared about. And I was I was a CPA at the time I was working in, in big four accounting and auditing. And um, I just had this like realization of how much I had been selling myself short and just like letting my potential go to waste. And so like on top of embarking on this journey to like heal, I also embarked on this journey to like figure out what my large, what, why I was put on this earth, you know, like what is my greater purpose. And it, that just like was a journey of like, you know, several years of just kind of crazy, just divinely inspired interactions and just like this journey to my soul that led me to creating the podcast. So I feel like just living, I just have such a, a deeper sense of self that um, in the past, when I would be in these situations, it was, it was like all that defined me, you know? It was like I didn't have anything else going on. And now I have areas of other areas of my life that provide me with like such fulfillment. How do you talk to people about... Let's talk a little bit about dysfunctional families. So again, you have on your website, what does a dysfunctional family look like? Dysfunctional families can come in all shapes and sizes. Sometimes it's blatant, like physical or sexual abuse, alcoholism, addiction. Other times, dysfunction is more subtle and covert. How do people differentiate, You know, in your view, how do people differentiate between the normal dysfunctional family and the dysfunctional family that's going to make it so that this 14 ACA laundry list is, you know, a description of your personality. I mean, I just think it's so personal. You know, I think that two people could experience the same exact thing and be impacted completely different. But like I say, I think it's every family is dysfunctional and it's, it's more so like how the dysfunction is handled within the family. So if it's just like recurring issues, but even just having an overcritical parent, it could even not even be that on the surface, not that bad. But if you're just constantly getting these like critical, even subtle critical comments your entire childhood, I mean, that can have like a really big impact on someone, you know? There's just so many different factors that go into it. That's why I think it's less important to figure out whether or not your family is dysfunctional. It's more important to see like, do you identify with these traits? And then we can go from there. Right. Okay. And do you currently attend ACA? Like, is that part? I'll be honest. Like, I haven't found a ton of meetings that are that great. That doesn't seem to be like unique to me. (laughs) Unfortunately, Uh, I haven't found a ton of good meetings. I found that it sounds fucked up, but like, I don't know. I've just been to a lot where it just seems like people haven't done the work. So yeah, I do. I found one that I really love. And then I started my Patreon community. So I host three weekly support groups a week. And it has just been 
it's just been so cool to just like create this community and there's lots of crosstalk, lots of crosstalk, but we like laugh. Like that's my message is like, Hey, yeah, like this stuff is raw and vulnerable and this stuff is painful, but like also like let's embrace it. You know, like I'm all about like just embracing the shit show and the relationship stuff and learning how to like laugh at ourselves and embrace our entire stories, especially the, the messy parts, especially the stuff that's like embarrassing and the shit that we like cringe over because that's us. That's part of our story. And I wouldn't take any of that back. Like if I could do things differently, I wouldn't because it shaped me into who I am today and given me depth and meaning. And if I could have a normal childhood, I wouldn't. So I feel like AA, like we learn how to be sober, like in Al-Anon, I feel like we learn boundaries and how to have relationships. And I feel like through doing this adult child work, we learn how to be ourselves. And that's such a gift. That's such a blessing. Do you have a relationship with your parents today? And what's that like? Yeah. I don't like to talk about it too much. I do. You know, one thing that's common is that like when one family member kind of breaks away from the dysfunctional family system, like the rest of the system sees that like as a threat and kind of attacks. And so, yeah, it's been, you know, that's been part of it too, is like, I'm still very much much in it. And just, it's been a journey of like, that's the other thing too, is like, I'm, this isn't about blaming our parents. And I think that that's like another big block that blocks people from doing this work is that they think that doing this work is throwing our parents under the bus. And that's not what it's about. You know, like, yes, we have to talk about what happened because we have to understand the causes and conditions that made us the way that we are. But it's not about blaming anyone because this shit doesn't just like pop out of nowhere. And our parents are just the product of their own experiences as well. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's just been like learning how to have a relationship with them that works for me. And that's like changes on a daily basis. You know, <laughs> if you were to have your own kids and raising them, what would handling dysfunction look like in your household? Oh, that's a good question. I've never been asked that. Well, you know, so like the three family, the dysfunctional family rules are like, don't talk, don't feel, don't trust. I think the big thing for me would be, you know, in my family, it was big blowups. And then the next day it was as if nothing ever happened. You know, and so when kids experience that, they learn how to not trust their reality. They don't learn how to like process emotions, right? In my family, it was either anger or numbness, no sadness. I think it's all about honest and open communication, you know, and making sure that kids are not parentified, that things are like appropriate. You know, I don't, I don't think it was wrong for my parents to tell me that like my mom was an alcoholic, but I don't think it was like appropriate for me to be like searching the house for my mom's booze with my dad. Do you ever encounter people who come in whose parents were sober, but the behavior never changed? Oh yeah. All the time. Or it's big, like grandchildren of alcoholics. So people who were raised by adult children. Yes. That's very, very common. Yeah. But yes, dry drunks. Yes, absolutely. And that can be really confusing too. Right. Because there's no alcohol. (laughs) So you're like, what is happening? What were the dynamics in your family growing up? There is a lot of food stuff, like food issues. I have one parent that has compulsive food issues that I inherited. Yay. And my, and they are adult, my parents are adult children that definitely trickled down. You know, the laundry list, I don't identify with all of it, but I do identify with some key points of it. One of them that's interesting that I really identify is 
the feeling of responsibility and like taking on responsibility for others and like just being so fucking responsible that I completely deteriorate. Like I'm so responsible for other people. And then my responsibility for myself is so heinous. And so like, it's hard to believe that the same person was doing those things. And that, that I do see. And that was a reaction to like, I want to be so, I want to need you so little. I want to be so self-reliant and I clearly can't rely on you. So I'm going to do X, Y, Z. But like you, I grew up with all the things that I needed. They, my parents didn't hit me. They didn't sexually abuse me. There was abuse, but just not from them. And so they were never the key focal point until much later in life when I noticed some things. And as I got sober longer, as I looked at these things, as I learned about family history, then some things started to make sense. But in my early recovery days, I didn't look at any of that or why I dated men who were 20, 30, 40 years older than me or why I did any of that. I, I just was like, I guess that's who I am. <laughs> I only identify with probably maybe like six or seven of the laundry list traits. So a lot of them didn't like, I wish that I had inherited like the perfectionism stuff. Oh, I, yeah, I don't have that. <laughs> I wish I did though. Yes, me too. Seriously. I wish I did. <laughs> yeah. No, no. It's, but you know, what's interesting about that is the perfectionism. Like I notice I have a lot of friends who have that and the perfectionism, I find that it holds them back so much more than I'm not, I don't need to be perfect. So I just barrel through and show up and do things. And I'm comfortable with the imperfection. And I find that the people who have the perfectionist response, they're stuck in like a, a little cubicle. They can't go anywhere because it has to be perfect. So they can't move on to the next thing. They can't progress in life as quickly, which has been really interesting. You know, I'm, I'm definitely like a leap and hope that fucking net appears. <laughs> Praying for the net, you know. Or so for me, it's like the procrastination piece that, like, I wish, you know. Because so what happened for me was like with work stuff. So like, I wish I could be one of those people that works hard no matter what, but I'm not. Like, if I'm not into it, like, I don't. I suck, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I actually got fired from my job in January, but it was really the best thing that ever could have happened. You know, it was like the push off the ledge that I needed to really step into my purpose. What is your like from here, right? You've had this, you've had this success and, and you continue this success with your podcast and your community. What is your vision for the next year with this community and podcast? I mean, I'm just trying to take it day by day, you know, <laughs> I, love it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what the fuck I'm doing, you know, like I'm trying to figure it out. And um, yeah, I just really wanted to grow it and host more workshops. And I just, I'm trying to figure it out. It's, I've been a one man band up until this point. So just trying to get some support around me to help me grow it. And I don't know what I'm doing on social media. I don't particularly enjoy it, to be honest. I was like a social media stalker before this, you know, I just kind of would like watch other people. I didn't really post things. So yeah, no, I just, I just want to reach as many people as I can because I just think that there's, I just think that there's like a lot of adult child issues going on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, there, it is hard to find a good therapist who can do the things, you know, specific to what you're talking about. And I think that um, hosting workshops and hosting support groups is amazing because a lot of people can't afford the therapy. And when you were talking about like, oh, a lot of people haven't done the work. I think sometimes people haven't done the work because they can't afford to do the work. And so offering avenues for that is really, really important and getting more people to be able to do that work in ways that maybe aren't, you know, 
accessible to them. So did you hit a point in your sobriety where like you had to start really looking for outside help? I was so fucking desperate that I was like, I just hope the 12 steps do something because I had been through so much therapy. I'd been through every kind of therapy. I'd talked to everything. I'd done EMDR, done all this stuff. And so, you know, I'd done psychodrama at the premier treatment center in the, you know, in the world for that psychodrama survivors week at the Meadows. And I think I was just like, nothing's working for me. And this is my, like, I, this hope and a prayer, baby. Like, I don't know how these 12 steps are going to save the life of someone who puts needles in their arm. I really don't, but I don't have any other option. So I'm going to try it. And then, so I just was hyper-focused on that and building my community in Southern California and doing that. And then, and then I engaged in the therapy as that was going for all the other stuff, like all the, cause it was very obvious and clear that I had trauma. And so that stuff helped me, like you were talking about, it helped me process the things that were very particular to who I was and what I was doing, right? The 12 steps are incredible. They don't address, they don't always address specific behaviors that you're doing in your recovery, right? That may be dangerous. Like that's not connected to that. I did things that didn't necessarily hurt anyone, but they were clearly like related to self-destructive thoughts or behaviors about, you know, why would someone do this? That therapy helped me process all the things that were going on throughout my recovery. And then since I I had uh, twin boys in January of 2017, and since I became a mom, it's been, it like blew up my spot. Like I, I literally had to redo every therapy, like all my childhood trauma came up, everything came up, stuff I thought I had resolved. And so I was like, I did this work. I did this work for 10 years. I was 10 years sober when they were born and you got to just do it again. So I, I'm totally a believer in like, you just have to take it as it comes. And if you need outside help, get that outside help. And if they 12 steps work for you and solve all your problems, fantastic. Whatever we have to do to be pretend to be normal on the planet, you know? Yeah, that's so common for shit to come up once when you have kids. And then there's also, I can't remember what what it is like if like when kids are certain ages, that certain things can come up for what happened to you at those certain ages. Yes. It's really intense. And also watching your parents interact with your children. Like in our house, we talk about big feelings, kind of what you're talking. We talk about big feelings. We talk about, I'm like, hey, I totally get that you're frustrated with me. I would be super frustrated with me too. Things like that, or like I don't ask them to stop crying or, you know, and my parents, you know, I'll have one of my parents will be like, okay, you know, it's enough you that you cried it out, you know, or just like some cultural, some generational, some traumatic related, whatever. And it's interesting to see things that I, they did to me or said to me or belief systems that I just never remembered until I saw them doing it with my kids. So I was like, oh, I guess I did grow up with that or, oh, that's interesting. And, and then really reshape using it as an opportunity to reshape what my... Oh, you have something for me. Well, yeah. So Tian Dayton's, she has this workbook, but there was like a, there was a couple things of grief that she described it as that. Yeah. So parental inner child grief. This happens to mothers and fathers who don't want to repeat the past, but don't fully understand how to identify and validate the grief of the child who lives inside of them. They feel they are giving what they never got. And when they give, they feel a kind of pain because the need in their child acts as a reminder or a trigger for the pain of their own unmet childhood yearning and needs. Wow. That's fucking spot on. That's spot on. Yeah. it's. I have never been 
I've never had to do as much work. And I, I started going to therapy when I was seven years old. I've never had to do the intensity or as much work to keep myself a normal human being as I have since the kids were born. And every day it brings stuff up. It blows my mind that people do parenthood without a program. I, I guess I guess they're normal. I don't know. I don't know what it's like. And you, and you have to. There's no other option. I mean, yeah, what else are they going right. to do? You're totally right. You're totally right. <laughs> yeah. I just I love what you're doing and really grateful that you have this resource. It's really cool and really, really needed and just super grateful that you came on the podcast and we got this opportunity to talk and I'd, I'd love to talk more with you. Yeah. Thank you so much. I feel honored. Please go check my shit out, guys. And I say fuck a lot. Okay. Just warning you. That's the only criticism I get is like, not really. I've gotten a few. I've gotten a few comments about the language. And it's like, here's... The, this is what people think. They think that since like I'm kind of one of the only... There's a few other adult child podcasts, but they're specifically attached to the 12-step program. And so they feel like since I'm one of the only ones that therefore I should... um appeal to every single adult child out there. And that really goes against what this whole adult child thing is about. This whole adult child thing is like about living as our authentic selves. And so I'm not everyone's cup of tea and I'm okay with that. I'll drive myself crazy if I try to appeal to every single person. So I say fuck. People, you can go to adultchildpodcast.com and you can download Adult Child Podcast anywhere podcasts are available. Yeah, it's just called Adult Child. So just so people know, there's another podcast. It's not longer in operation, but it's called Adult Child Podcast. So make sure you just go to the one that's just Adult Child. Adult Child. Okay, got it. And the, yes. the, the website. It's the, more, the catchier... Yeah, it's the more catchier uh, picture. Yes. And they can find... Same adult child pod, adult child pod for Instagram and TikTok and TikTok. Perfect. Thank you so much, Andrea. Thank you. Hello, beautiful people. We are back real quick. Thanks for listening to the episode. I hope it was amazing. Blew your socks off if you're wearing them. Absolutely. I would say a highlight for me of this episode is the poop in the closet story. I know it comes right out of the gate and you maybe you weren't ready for it. This is the reality. It might have been a little much right out of the gate. I don't know who you are exactly. So we hope that it wasn't too much. But boy, I as soon as after we did the episode, I couldn't stop thinking about it all the time. I did check in our in your bathroom. In our bathroom just to make sure there wasn't any bogeys hanging around there. I think her story is just so interesting. Like there's so much to the adult child world that I just wasn't familiar with. You know, I had kind of packaged it in some different ways in my mind. And she really just had some really interesting takes on what that world is and what that can look like. I think the adult child piece is really important to talk about because of the list of specific attributes that comes from people who grow up in that environment, which I find fascinating. And I think it gives people a lot of answers they might not otherwise have. And then also the community of people to go and get very specific support for their struggles. So that was really great. And I think she has a lot of insight, obviously, into how to heal from that. And I hope that was helpful. Uh, Ashley, I would like to meet like-minded people that are struggling with the same things that I am. How? What? What should I do? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because LionRock.life and the LionRock Life app have a discount code for a free month 
where you can go and get support in over 70 meetings a week, over 70 support group community meetings a week. These meetings are not 12-step based. They are non-denominational where people come and with all different types of recovery. You have codependency, you have adult child, you have uh, depression, anxiety, alcoholism, drug addiction, meditation, workshops. It's everything that you could possibly want. And on holidays, you get marathon meetings at all hours of the night and day. Super, super cool. Check it out for free. Discount code is COURAGE for one month free of lionrock.life or the Lion Rock Life app. Awesome. All right, listeners, you've been warned. It's that time okay, for the dad I'm... joke of the day. I don't... I I see... Like, I can see a, a, just a little sweat. It's formula, forming on Ashley's brow. <sighs> Ashley... What does a zombie vegetarian eat? Not your brains. Grains. (laughs) Oh my God. I wish I wish I were being attacked by a zombie right now instead of doing this and ruining a lot of people's lives. Wow. It hits so hard. <laughs> it hits so hard. If anyone's catching on, I do like dad jokes in particular where I get to make sort of a sound. So yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if you want to send me any of that, I would, that would yeah, be yeah, rad, send them dad jokes. Yeah, Send me some that you want me to read. I'm ready to do it. Yeah. I, you know. yeah, I don't know if I'm ready, but do it anyway. Because <laughs> this shit is absolutely <laughs> flabbergasting for me. <laughs> All right. Well... We're rooting for you this week. We hope it's amazing and fantastic and you get to eat maybe some cake or something. I don't know. What? <laughs> <laughs> it's three hours later. All right. Just just cut me some slack. I, right? I am. I it am. might as well be the middle of the night. I get and, it. And I would be excited about eating some cake. And I thought maybe the listeners would also like some cake. If you want to get down on some cake with me, let me know. We are not on drugs. <laughs> However, if you believe we are, that is understandable. We This is actually end of the day burnt. Crispy, crispy. Crispy, crispy. But we are rooting for you. And if you need anything, please feel free to reach out to us at podcast at lionrock.life podcast at lionrock.life. You can email us there and we answer questions. And sometimes we even do episodes on the questions and they are always anonymous. Do not worry. All right, folks, you take care out there. Ooh, that's good. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.